Back to that James passage, if you would, with me. James chapter 1. We're going to talk about a non-fiction faith. So let me start with a question. What's the difference between fiction and non-fiction in movies or perhaps in literature? Well, you probably are aware of the fact that non-fiction is based on fact. And fiction is based on fantasy. So, i.e., example... Indiana Jones is a fictional movie. Marvel movies, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Disney movies. You know, I had to tell my daughter, Little Mermaid isn't real, honey. She doesn't really exist. And that, you know, you can't, the Jedi mind trick with your hand, you, you really can't use that on people to get things you want. But nonfiction, it's based on facts. And you have biographies about the historical lives of people who really existed, cooking books, uh, fitness, health, history, those are all based on factual evidence and, and things of that nature. The word fictio is the Latin word which we get fiction from. And it means, literally means, uh, to shape something that is pretend. It's, it's not real, it's just pretend. And the word fact comes from the Latin word factum, something that is already done. In other words, it's been proven to be a fact. So let me give you some examples. You know, we thought for a long time in America that um, the earth, or in the world, the earth was the center of our solar system. But we found out that that wasn't true, that that was fiction. And we came up with heliocentricity, which means the sun is the center of our, our solar system. And then you, you have um, the earth was flat. They used to think that for a while. And then we came to the realization, oh, that's fiction, that the real reality is that the earth is round. Here's another one. Fiction. Eagles are a good football team. <laughs> Fact. Eagles are a football team. Fiction. Pastor Dave is younger than Pastor Walker. Fact, he is six years older than Pastor Walker. <laughs> and it's very important that you know the difference, isn't it, between fact and fiction. You have to be able to tell the difference. And you know as well as I do in our culture, especially on social media now, there's fake news. Uh, there's fake news. People report people dying, committing crimes, doing all kinds of stuff, and it's not real. And in fact, a lot of times it's complete fabrication. There's no verifiable facts whatsoever. And, and, and perhaps once in a while there's a nugget of truth in there, but reality says that it's all based on a lie. You see, James, the New Testament book we're going to study, is a book that was written to early Christians to know how to tell the difference between a nonfiction and a fiction faith. A, a faith that was based on facts, Bible facts, reality, changed lives, and one that was based on fantasy, one that wasn't real. In fact, the word faith is used 16 times in the book of James. So this is a book that is redundant with this concept, and that is that faith is... This is how you know whether it's real or it's not real. And that's why James starts out this book with the testing of your faith. It's really the key that unlocks the front door and all the other doors in this book from here on out. And so let me start with the opening line of James, which doesn't seem to be much at for up front. But I want to tell you about a man, the man who wrote this book. And I want to tell you how he came to understand not fake news, but good news. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how he be able to possess a non-fiction faith. Now, perhaps you are familiar with scripture and perhaps you're not. 
But if you are, you'll understand that there are a number of people in the Bible whose name is James. And it's the Hebrew word Yaakov, which means Jacob. So that's the real meaning. We say James because we're Americans and that's English. But they would have said Yaakov. But there was James, the brother of John. They were two fishermen. They were brothers. They were part of Jesus' twelve disciples. That's not the James of this book. There's another James, and he was called James the son of Alphaeus, also one of the twelve disciples. Now, if you've been watching the, 12, the Chosen series on, on television about the life of Jesus and such, you know Jesus in the, in the Chosen says this is Big James and this is Little James. And Big James was the son of Alphaeus. He was one of the disciples. But this is not the James of this book. But there was another James, and he was one of the early church pillars in other words, he was one of the most famous leaders. Galatians 2.9 puts him in the same category with Peter and John in the early church. And he was the shepherd or the pastor or the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was a great man of God, a great Christian. He's the author of this book. And you may not know this or not. You may know this or you may not. He was also the half-brother of Jesus. He had the same parents, Mary and Joseph. Mary was his mom, and, de- and Joseph was his dad. He grew up and was raised with Jesus, and he was the most prominent James. He didn't have to say James, the son of Alphaeus, James, son of... He didn't have to put any addendums to the end of his name because he was so prominent and so well-known and respected as a leader and a Christian that he could just put his name on there, and people knew exactly who he was. But i got to tell you, this James, as great as a Christian and believer he was, was not always one. Um, In fact, in John's Gospel, chapter 7, Jesus is getting ready to go to the feast of the Passover, and his brothers are really pushing him, Say, come on, get out there, tell people who you really are, do some more miracles, people need to see. And they were trying to force Jesus' hand, and the verse says in John 3, John 7, 3 through 5, and I quote, for not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. So James, one of his brothers, he didn't even understand Jesus. He didn't believe in him. He didn't think of his brother as being the Messiah, the King of Israel. He didn't get that understanding until after the resurrection. And the Bible says that after the resurrection of Christ, if you would turn to it, you don't need to, just listen. 1 Corinthians 15 says that after Jesus rose from the dead on Easter then he appeared to a lot of people. Now, if you study the Gospels, you'll know that most of the time when Jesus appeared to people after his resurrection, he appeared to people in large or small groups. Um, But there were a few exceptions. There were just a handful of individuals that Jesus said that he needed to talk to them personally. And one of them was Mary Magdalene at the grave. And another one was Peter. And another one was the Apostle Paul a little later. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says this, And then he appeared to James. See, the big brother came and appeared to the little brother. See, because he wanted his brother to know who he really was. And see, James, years later, after Jesus appeared to him, writes these words. See if they don't make more sense to you now. James, and I'm going to read it literally, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's his relationship. Remember, he's talking about his brother Jesus, half-brother. He says, I'm his slave and he's my master, see. James is saying this. Catch this. And you, you know, if you have siblings, you'll know what I'm talking about. 
He's saying this, I grew up with Jesus. I watched Jesus. We slept in the same bedroom. <laughs> right? I watched him in the morning, and I watched him when he got up, and he never was cranky, and he never got up. That wasn't him. I watched him interact with all of us, and Jesus had brothers and sisters. And I watched them interact when they were mean to him, and they said things to him, and they took stuff from him. And, 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 or, and I saw him. I watched him. When everyone was looking, and when no one was looking, I watched Jesus. I watched him when mom and dad told him stuff that I certainly would have ever wanted to do, and I didn't like that they were telling me. But when they told Jesus, it was different. I watched him. I watched him in all those scenarios. And here's what he says, James is saying. And after all of that... After all of that, see, I've come to believe that he is much more than my half-brother. I have come to believe this, that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. See, and that's saying a lot. The Greek word Lord, kurios, is a very important word. It, it does denote master-slave relationship, but it's much more than that. It's really in the Old Testament used of deity. You see, Christians in the early church... Uh, in the early church times in the first century, were people who were persecuted. And one of the things that they were persecuted for was because the Romans who were in charge wanted Christians to add Jesus to all of the pantheon of their gods. They didn't say Christians couldn't worship Jesus. You just can't worship him by yourself or as him alone as the only God. He has to be added on. And they were refused to do it. And so they made them say, or they wanted them to make them say, at the cost of their life, Kaisar Kurios. And that means Caesar is Lord. And they refused to. They refused to at the cost of their own blood. And the reason was is because they know that that word is loaded. That the word Lord is to denote someone as God. And they could not put those two words together, Caesar and God. And James, as a monotheist, as all Jewish people were would never have said that word related to any one individual, Caesar or not. But with his brother, he did. He said, see, and I'm a servant. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. He is Lord of everything. Yes, he's my brother. Yes, I know him when he grows up. But here's, I've become convinced that he is Lord and he is Christ. And that word means king. And James came to the realization in his life, when he met his brother Jesus after the resurrection, that he was more than his brother, that he was Lord, that he was God, and that he was king of his life. What a wonderful story to tell you on Thursday. My friend Thomas is who's here today. We've met numerous times for uh, dinner and, and, and times we've talked together. And we were talking about Jesus over dinner on Thursday night. And I was explaining the gospel to him. And I was trying to find an analogy, as Jesus often was good at, to contextualize the truth of the gospel in ways that people in their own context can understand. And Thomas owns a trucking company. And it's, it's a fairly big organization. And a lot of people work for him. And they have a lot of trucks. And some of those people who work for him have their own truck. And they kind of come in as individuals. And he has partners on le different levels and people who work for him. And it's all kinds of things going on in his company. And I said, Thomas, let me tell you what it means to be a Christian. It's not just that you ask Jesus to, to be your savior so that you can have a ticket from hell. Although that is certainly a great benefit. I told him, I said, you know what it is? It's like Jesus doesn't want to come into your life and have an independent truck and you help him give business in your life. 
I said he doesn't want to be a partner. He doesn't want to be even the CEO in the sense that, you know, he has a lot of authority in your life. I said, you know what, Thomas? He wants to take over your company. He wants to take over your life. He wants the entirety of your life. He wants you to say, Lord Jesus, take my life in its entirety. Come into my life, forgive my sins, and control every part of it. And I, and I love, and I asked Thomas if I could say this. I said, I love his response. I said, what would keep you from doing that tonight? And he says, nothing, because I think I'd be crazy not to. And I said, well, I think you're right about that. And it was a joy to listen to Thomas um, at the restaurant, at the table, trust Jesus as his Lord and Savior and call on him to forgive his sins. Amen? And have eternal life. And what a new beginning that is. But you know what? That's the truth. Jesus doesn't want to just save you so that someday down the road you die and go to heaven. That is true, and that is certainly part of it. But see, he wants to be the owner. James came to the realization that his brother didn't want to step into his life to have a little bit of a say. He wanted to be Lord. See, that's why it's Lord Je Jesus is what James had called him his whole life. I know the Jesus part. I know the, I know the God. I live with him. I know him. But to call him Lord, to call him God, to call him the guy who was the owner of my life and everyone and everything in it, to say that he's the Christ, to believe that he's the king, that he's on the throne, and that nothing is more important than him in my life is quite a different story. And James came to have a non-fiction faith, that, that he understood that a fiction faith is one that just wants eternal life fire insurance. He, he, I, James wanted more than that and realized that salvation was more than that, that having Jesus in your life is, yes, as Savior, but he is Lord and King. You see, if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll find, and you'll see it in James as well, that following Jesus is not a democracy, it's a monarchy. See, Jesus' authority in your life is not like the authority of the president. I mean, he's limited by senatorial vote or agreement with Congress, or he has to make, you know, basically they decide periodically whether they're going to vote him into office every four years based on the popularity of his policies. That's not how it works with the relationship with Jesus. You don't vote him in every other, so many years if you like his policies and what he wants to do and has done in your life. It doesn't work that way. You don't get together and say, hey, Jesus, that's a nice idea, but we voted you out. And, and, and here's what James says. You know what the first test of a nonfiction faith is? Here's the first te test, is whether Jesus is your Savior and your Lord. See, fictional faith is, people would say, true believers have Jesus only as their Savior. But after they get saved and get their fire insurance, and they can live, go back to living how they wanted to before. See, that's fictional faith. And all throughout the book of James, you're going to see that that is diametrically opposed to what salvation really is all about. The fact is this, true believers know and submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And knowing Jesus as your Lord is going to make a huge difference in everything in your life every day. Now, James says, I'm going to start today and with one example, and that is how you respond to trials. So I want to just unpack two, because that's all we have time for, two truths about how people who are in God's family, and that's how he starts. He says, I'm writing to you to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad in the dispersion. In other words, I'm writing to you as a Christ community. I'm, I'm writing to you as a new people. And he starts off with family terms. My brethren. See, here's what he wants to say. See, I'm, he's going to tell you two truths about how you respond to trials. But only Christians can get this. 
This is only true of people who follow Jesus because you're a new kind of person. Not because you're superior or better, but because you've been transformed. He says, now that you're a follower of Jesus, he's the Lord of your life. See, here's what it means. That he's the Lord of your life in the trials that you face and how that you respond to them. And James wants to say, let me unpack it for you and show you what it means when Jesus is Lord, how you face difficulties that you encounter on a daily basis. And there's two truths he wants to share. Number one is this you got to get this down. Trials will find you. Trials will find you. Notice what he says, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. Please circle it. It doesn't seem significant, but it certainly is. He doesn't say if you meet trials of various kinds. What does he say? When. Can I tell you, trials are inevitable. They are unavoidable. Being a Christian does not exempt you from them. In fact, I told Thomas, listen, when you become a Christian, life may get harder and you may have more trials, more afflictions, more opposition when you become a Christian. They're not going to, they're going to happen in your life. See, there are some believers, and perhaps you're one of them today, that you've bought into the secular mentality that says this, that as a Christian, I'm entitled to a virtually trial-free life. Now that I know Jesus, bad things shouldn't happen. And then you kind of rethink it a little bit, okay, that wouldn't be realistic. So you come to the realization, or you think you do, that you come and say, well, God may let little things, little bad things happen to me. And you've already got a list, although you perhaps haven't written it out. You have it in your mind. You know, okay, I may get a flat tire, hopefully not on the way to work, but I may get a flat tire. I may have a brief sickness, certainly not cancer. A, a financial setback, a small financial setback. But we say, you know, now that I'm a Christian, I don't think that God should let big bad things happen to me. Can I tell you, living in America, I, I think you'll agree with this, there's never been a culture like ours that has set up people to make them so vulnerable to the trials of life than our culture. You know why? Because we have become a, a nation of victims. We are so prone to complain, and I'll, I'll say this, for a lot of people constantly, how unfair life is. That's how secular society thinks. And I'm not surprised by that. Why? Because if you, all you have is this life, and you don't have a guaranteed heaven as your home for eternity, you don't have a relationship with God, you don't have any hope beyond this, if this is all you have right now, then you're going to get all the happiness you can right now. So listen, so if you have a problem in your health, and you have a problem with money, you have a problem in relationships... I understand why your life might fall apart. I understand why the whole thing just unravels for you. I understand because this is all you're going to get. This is all you have. And you, if this happens to you, I'm done. I'm ruined. It's over. Why do I go on? And some people don't. See, I, I get it if that's all you have. But James says, oh, not for you. Not if Jesus is your Lord. Not if he's forgiven your sins. Not if you have a future hope in heaven with him for eternity. He says, that's different for us. And so we know this, Scripture says, through many tribulations, Acts 14, 22, will enter the kingdom. Jesus said, Luke 6, 40, the servant is not greater than his Lord. So if Jesus himself, as the Holy Lamb of God, suffered and was afflicted and people persecuted him, what do you think might happen to us? See, here's what the first vantage point of people who have Jesus as Lord, what the benefit of it when you come to trial. See, they're going to find you and you know it. You're not surprised by them. You expect them. And there's a huge difference between that mentality. So let me ask you, is that your thinking? 
See, is that your response? Or perhaps this morning, and you might not lift your hand to say it out loud, but have you ever thought, maybe recently, that when bad things happen in your life, I can't believe it. I come to church, I try to read my Bible, I try to be moral and do what's right. And this is a rip-off, God. This is a rip-off. I do this stuff for you, and this is what I get in return. I've had people tell me, Pastor Walker, when I became a Christian, this and this happened to me, and I'm not a Christian anymore. You know why? Because I didn't sign up for this. (laughs) I'm saying, you're so wrong, my friend. You did sign up for this. See, those are all expressions of worldly expectations. As Christians, we need to come to this reality. When trials are going to find us, it's not if, it's when. Otherwise, can I tell you? Put the verse on the screen, would you, Steve? Listen to 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul writes this to Thessalonians who have not been saved that long. And he says this, I've written to establish you and exhort you in your faith. Why? That no one be moved. See, no one be moved. And the word move means to turn back from what you believe, to shrink back. In other words, I don't want you to have trials and afflictions come into your life. And here's what you think. Oh, I can't believe this is happening. If I knew that this was going to happen to me up front, I never would have become a Christian. He says, you know why I'm writing to you? I don't want you to go back on your faith. Why? For you yourselves know, watch this language, for we are destined for this. Destined. It's the Greek word that means, literally, it's almost always used of geography to put something at a particular location on purpose. In other words, do you see as a Christian that God says trials are going to find you and find you in life and you are destined for it? God says, I've located them. I've put them in your life and there's a reason for it. They're going to happen. It's going to find you. So here's the Christian vantage. If Jesus is Lord, they're not accidents. Their appointments. See, God has a reason for the trials and the difficulties and the pressures and the fears and the anxiety you're facing this morning. But there's another, flip the coin over. Remember I told you two truths we're going to unpack. The first one is trials will find you. So the question is when they do, how you respond. And, and, and say, Pastor Walker, well, how, why would I want to respond this way? Because of number two. Trials not only will find you, but trials will form you. Trials will form you. Look what it says in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy. For you know, verse 3, that the testing of your faith, see it, produces steadfastness. So you're telling me, Pastor Walker, let me get it straight. Consider it joy. So I go to the doctor, and he runs the test, and I get cancer, and my first response ought to be, hot diggity, I have cancer. Not at all. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, hope you can work it out. Enjoy those trials. That's not it. He's not saying to you, have a great time. He's not saying, hey, you're not going to have any joy until the trials go away. He's not saying that. He's not saying unless your life is going smoothly, don't expect to have any joy. He's not saying that. He's not saying, hey, you ought as a Christian, it's great to have trials. Bring it on. That's not what he's saying. He says, consider it joy. Why? For you know there's something in your mind. You have a framework when Jesus is Lord. There's something that you know that other people don't have as a resource. And what is it? That God uses trials to produce something in your life. That's the word. See, 
Here's what trials are for. He wants to make you into a certain type of person. And later on, he uses all this language. So here's why you need steadfastness. So that you may lack nothing, verse 4. That you may be mature and complete, he says. Those are all the words. That you, you should let it take its full effect. See all the words in there? Those are the ways that trials work in you. Jesus says, you know why trials should cause joy? Because you have the ability, because you're becoming a mature believer, to see this, that trials produce qualities in my life to make me like Jesus that I can't get any other way. I can't be complete. I can't be whole. I'll never be the Christian that God wants me to be unless I see trials as forming and shaping my life. I.e. example, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12 that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Why? Because God had given him so many revelations and he wrote so much in the New Testament and God used him in a way that he's hardly ever used any other Christian in all of history. He said, unless I get lifted up with pride, he said, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. You see, you will never be humble. You'll never know what true humility even looks like. Unless God brings difficulties in your life. Without suffering and difficulty, you'll never know how weak you are. You'll never know how little you really know. You think you know life and you think you know all about it. Here's what, here's what he says. You don't know anything. And the reason why you think so much that you know so much is you don't have trials working on you. He said, you'll never know how swallowed up and how swollen with pride you are and how self-willed and, believe it or not, arrogant that you are until you're humbled by difficulties and trials in your life. Another one, Paul said in Philippians 4 that I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I've learned to be abased, have nothing, I've learned to abound. Where did he learn it? Because he was in prison for his faith. He had lost his freedom and everything. See, I have experienced, and you probably have too, that it's the times when God takes away stuff from us. When he takes away the things that we think we have to have, see, then we think, I can't do without that. And God takes it away, and I've seen it, and it's sad when God takes away someone's spouse or their child in death. And God takes away their job and the career that they had found their identity in. Or he removes their health. And they were used to doing and going all these places. And now they can't do any of those things. And I've seen God take away people's financial security. And they used to have this and go on these vacations and have all of this. And now they have next to nothing in comparison to that. They've lost most, if not all of it. And see, you can't discover... How satisfying God is until you lose some of those things. Till you discover that, oh my, I've come to the realization I don't really have to have that. I don't really have to have all that. That I have God and the Lord Jesus in my life. And that's what I really need the most. See, through trials we learn humility, we learn contentment, and we learn compassion. I bet we could go through the audience today... And we could ask a number of you, how many of you have ever become or gone through a difficulty and a struggle in your life? And you would say, as a result of that, you now understand people in a way that you've never would do it before. I bet John, we were talking about John Butler, 16 years, the transplant, right? I bet John knows about what people say, oh, I might have to get a transplant. He knows more about that 
16 years later, and listen, I lost both my parents a couple years ago within six, seven months of one another. See, I used to tell people how sorry I was. I prayed for you. I know what it's like to lose your parents. See, when you go through trials and difficulties, you know what it does? It gives you the ability to be able to relate to people. It gives you the ability to love and be compassionate to people in ways you never really thought possible before. But you, but you never have that if it weren't for the trials that you endured. And of course, it, it, above all else, it shapes your faith. When really difficult trials come and they find you, See, are you going to allow them to form or deform you? Do they push you closer to Jesus or do they push you farther away from him? See, trials have a way of showing whether your faith is fiction or non-fiction. I have, sit, I have sat down in my office and talked to people whose spouses walked away from their marriage and within less than six months, they themselves walked away from their faith in Christ. I've seen it. So how important is it? Well, it's absolutely crucial because what does trials produce that we desperately need in trials? Here he says, steadfastness. See in the text? Perseverance. We would say today, endurance. And say, Pastor Walker, well, how do I hold on to my faith? How do I hold on to... Listen, it's difficult. The trials I'm facing, the pandemic, the COVID, my job, my children, the marriage... All of it, my health. How do I endure and persevere and, and, and steadfastly follow Jesus through that? Well, you look to him for the ability. May I close with Hebrews 12? It's just back one page. Can you turn that for me? It's worth seeing. Hebrews 12 and verse 3. You remember what James said? Consider it all joy. Well, let me tell you another verse that tells you to consider because the only way that you're going to consider it all joy and be able to endure your trials because Jesus is Lord is if you look to him as Lord. Hebrews 12.3 says, consider him. See it? Consider him. Evaluate him. Look at his life. If Jesus is saying this, I endured, watch me. See, the only way that you can persevere and let trials produce and complete you with steadfastness is if you constantly go back to the cross. Endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why should we look to him and how he endured so that purpose you may not grow weary or faint-hearted? See, you might be here this morning and we want you to know that if you're tired and you're weary... And you're not sure, and you may have even said it recently, I'm not sure how much longer I can go on like this. Something's got to change. Jesus understands it. You know what he says? Look to me. If you think you have it rough, let me tell you this, look to me because I endured the cross. I endured hostility from sinners, people who wanted to murder me and shame me, and they did. He says, I endured such contradictions so you don't have to grow weary in your mind. Consider me. And here's what Jesus would say to you personally this morning. See what I endured for you. See what I endured for you so that you could have eternal life, that you could be saved, that you could enjoy eternity. See, I endured that for you. Now with my power and my strength working in your life to form and shape you so that you can be like me. See, I endured for you. Now please let me help you endure for me. You endure for me. Hold on. Follow me. 
no matter what comes your way, follow me, let me produce, let me use trials and difficulties in my life to be a cause of joy. When you see what the trials is going to do for you and how it's going to make you follow me and be like me, let me show you in the end what you're going to be like. You're going to have joy you never thought you could. Jesus says, can I say it? I'll quote and close. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. In verse 2 he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. Joy. See, Jesus said, I was treated poorly. I, I was going through the worst trial you could ever imagine, but I found joy, not in the pain and suffering itself, but what it would do and complete in you. In you. Say, Jesus, trials are going to find me. But more than anything else, if you're Lord of my life, I'm asking you today, I want the trials to form me into the image that you've set for me. Let's pray. Our Father, I don't know today in this auditorium or those who are listening online how many are people are struggling with trials the magnitude of I don't grasp, but you do. And you endured far worse. And Father, for those who will look to you today, and maybe there are some who need to look to you by faith, they've never come to know you as their Lord and Savior. They never come to realize that they're a sinner and they need a Savior. And Jesus and his death and the cross and his resurrection are the only possible way that they could know you and have the payment for their sin satisfied. I pray today that you'd work in their heart by the Holy Spirit to bring them to a place where they would seek me out. That they might have life eternal in your name. And for those of us who know you as Lord and Savior, Father, I pray that we would begin to live like it in particular when it comes to how we respond to our trials. Help us, Lord. We are but dust. We need you. And we're asking you to give us the joy that comes from knowing what you're going to make of us through these trials. May we have that perspective and live that way for your honor and glory alone. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.